0: G'day, welcome to the Far North Leadership Podcast. My name is Jeff, and in each episode of the podcast, I'm going to interview a leader from the beautiful city of Cairns in Far North Queensland. It's called the Far North Leadership Podcast for that simple reason, because it features leaders from the Far North. So I'll interview people from a variety of different sectors. You know, I believe that we can grow as leaders simply by listening to and learning from each other. I don't know about you, but every time I meet a leader or I overhear a leadership conversation, it helps me grow. So I encourage you to settle in and listen up, and you'll have the opportunity to learn from a guest in every single episode. In this episode, I interview Dr. Mark Wenatong. Dr. Mark is from the Cubby Cubby Tribal Group of South Queensland, and he's passionate about improving health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. Currently, Dr. Mark is the Aboriginal Public Health Medical Advisor at Apunapima Cape York Health Council, where he's working on health reform across Cape York Aboriginal communities. I spent some time with Mark recently in his office here in Cairns. Mark, thanks so much for joining me today. Before we jump into leadership, let's start with music. So music has been a big and
1: important part of your life. What
0: instruments do you play and why do you love music so much?
1: Um, Guitar and keyboards. And um, keyboards is completely gammon on make-up stuff, but um, but I know enough to um, make people think I can play piano <laughs> and keys. Guitar's okay, though, and um, people keep me away from the vocal microphones very much. We... <laughs> I see the sound man sliding the slider down, the fader down the back, seems like any the... Anyway, um, so music is, I guess... Um, um, for lots of reasons. Um, I think just brought up on music, you know, Um, our old household when I was a kid. Although, to be honest, just me and my older brother out of six of us are the only ones who really play. Um, <clears throat> um But it's always been a big part. And then uh, I'm not quite sure how I just like music. Yeah. <laughs> um, it ended up getting into that. So it, these days I, I still refer to myself as a musician, first then a medical <laughs> practitioner so you have to have something to fall back on as they say yeah. um, um, but I think it's the ability um, of music, there's a couple of things in it um, the ability of music to touch your soul um, to recreate feelings or to create feelings um, especially now, you know, it's a political expression, it's emotional expression um, and you um, artistic expression and stuff like that and um, um, it's just great I think the other thing is playing in bands so I hate I hate doing anything solo but bands is such a communal thing you know playing with with a band and really being able to pull things together and listening to each other and playing off each other and stuff like that um, very a nice team sort of feel to it <laughs> and, and the other thing I guess is playing you know when I started playing professionally up here in Cairns I was playing reggae um, two nights a week up here. Um, so finishing a shift at you know two o'clock, uh, sorry ten o'clock at night, and then going straight down and playing in the club till about two o'clock in the morning. But it's beautiful. It's playing. You're playing in a tropical city, playing with an island band, playing reggae. Oh, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> Perfect. It's also big for your family and your kids as well. Yeah, the kids. My my kids just got brought up with being dragged around first to church um, um, for you know back in the day rehearsed twice a week sometimes um, and they'd get dragged around to everything um, and then with other bands as well after that and so was the duos and trios and bands at the same time and the kids would just get dragged around everything because my um, my partner at the time my wife was a um, keyboard player as well so she played professionally as well so both of us had to go so we could never afford babysitting so um, so yeah um, Joel my eldest son who's near our, a doctor, as well as a hip hop artist, um, he grew up, you know, with his head on that the pillow that lies inside the kick drum to stop the sand to stop the kick drum. <laughs> so he's got a good beat, you know. <laughs> he wonders where it came from, but I can. <laughs> um, and the kid just grew up with that. we'd rehearse downstairs all the time when we're living over in Martin Street here in Cairns, and um, um, and it was always reggae, so they were heavily kind of influenced by reggae as well even though they do hip-hop and other stuff now um so the, the kids all grew up with that they knew all the songs to all the old reggae classics before they were six you know <laughs> um so they were influenced pretty heavily and and i'd have to say they kind of um matured musically a lot earlier than than i did anyway so um name was writing songs when she was about 13 and um singing really well then and writing pretty good songs um, which was embarrassing for us as adult musicians <laughs> well the worst thing was you see, I asked her one time when we were doing a demo tape um, for our band in Newcastle to just do the sound check, do the recording and she knew the songs because they were all our songs and she just sang it better than all of us and she said, give me back that microphone <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so they, they were brought up that way and um, uh, Joel, my elder son was doing sound and rapping for our band while he was still underage in Newcastle and um, my other son was playing guitar then as well and getting into it as an underage person by carrying our guitars in <laughs> um, and um, and yeah so they kind of all got That I didn't have any choice really um, so, and I'm really glad because it gives us that point of um, artistic expression we can do together, you know, and yep. um, and it's fun.
0: <laughs> when you when the kids are back home and you you know just start jamming together, is, does it bring you closer together, or uh, is it an expression of, of your bond
1: already? Uh, it's um oh, oh, it's probably an expression of our bond, um, more than anything else. That's nice and subtly put. I think yeah, um um I don't think it brings us closer together, but it helps us to share the parts, the other bits of life that we love that um are another artistic you know another bond um but it's yeah it probably just enhances that really more than anything else and it's good fun you know it's just fun
0: when did you first realise that you were a
1: leader um that's really interesting I, I um I was really bad academically at school in a primary school and we were really broke you know um and so we kind of lived below the poverty line like in, in bad you know the, the, we were kind of what you'd call fringe dwellers as Aboriginal people down in central Queensland um, so we didn't have what do you mean by fringe trawlers? Um that's people who live on the outskirts of town basically who've come in but don't really move into town but live on the outskirts so you're kind of less visual <laughs> less of an eyesore out there you know um, and so there's lots of Indigenous people that kind of lived that way kind of on the fringes um, and um, and still had our own kind of community and stuff like that um, but, um, but going to school um, um, a mainstream school and, um, and by the time I was in a grade 4 or grade 5 or something like that I was playing footy and um because I was the one on the field who was yelling at everybody, there were big gaps and stuff like that, and blah, blah, and I was playing halfback, the coach said, you know, you you, you have to be the captain. And, <laughs> and then I had to be the captain of the sports team. And I'm thinking, like, this isn't my background. This is not a natural fit. Um, I mean, it didn't appear to be naturally what I do, but it's naturally ended up what I do, you know. Um, so impossible for me to not kind of stand up a bit if there's nobody there or if there's a vacuum or you know. um, so um and and yeah and it, and it came from left field for me because that's not I was shy I was not you know um, completely unconfident as I was growing up and you know and, and I was Aboriginal in a in a mainly white town it wasn't a great um, you know it's not a great step into leadership generally <laughs> it's more a step into alcoholism is so that that generally but but it worked for me yeah
0: yeah and um, yeah. Now, uh, a few decades since then, what what do you understand leadership is? What is leadership to you?
1: You know, um, I um, uh, one of my mates, a really good friend of mine who's now um, the first assistant secretary down in the Department of Health, I think, um, he was doing a talk when we were at a conference in Hawaii to a bunch of Indigenous doctors about leadership, and there were three key things he brought out that I've kind of expanded on for myself now, but... um. And, um, and they're really relevant, particularly for Aboriginal people because there's always competing agendas, you know, to politically and everything like that at community level. But um, um, And the three things to me in leadership were knowing who you are and that is really having a solid knowledge of yourself, your responses, why you do things, why you think certain ways. Culturally, it's knowing who you are, um, your identity, your tribal group and that kind of thing. And for this guy, he was a gay gay dude so it was he was expressing first time he was telling people publicly that he was homosexual and um and for him um that was a really big thing because that's how he'd get attacked when he was doing leadership stuff um because he he was never transparent about stuff and who he was and stuff like that so one of the things here i think is just that um, um being very um not happy with yourself but um comfortable with yourself and your level of knowledge about what you're working in and stuff like that there's that there's that part of it, and the knowing who you are in Aboriginal um, leadership, it's vitally important, just because people, well, that's the first thing they'll say is, "You might been, where do you come from?" And you have not ever lived really in the community, you know, all the stuff. So um, it's really important to know where you are, and, and to know if you're like me, you're not. I'm not a traditional fellow. I don't know all the cultural stuff. I know enough to get by, um, but I have never been through cultural initiation and those kind of things. And I'm happy with that. I'm, I'm aware of who I am, so that can't attack me, other things can't attack me, it's kind of water off of off the back and, um But if you haven't figured those things out as a leader, that's where your weak point will be later on. Um, in, you know, not so much in, in good stuff, but in um, the negative aspects of leadership. Um, the second part, is, part was knowing what you're doing. And um, strangely enough, even on national committees um, that I sit on, it's, it's not that uncommon for groups to really not have a clear understanding of what they're actually doing. So, as a leader, betting that down, particularly if you're leading in, wherever it is, at a community level, at an institutional level, political level, um, if you're taking people with you, you really do have to know what you're doing. (laughs) And you have to have that really clear in your head, um, both the negative implications, the positive implications, and have gone through all of that in your head before you start getting involved in that kind of leadership, because you'll just get, you know, um, fall into the traps of just thinking about all the good stuff and not thinking about the negative implications because you, you know want to have that bias <laughs> to push things through but it's really important to um, really know what you're doing and so ha- clarifying that um, thinking it through in your head and knowing that before you start guiding other people and then the third thing is knowing why you're doing it um, and that whole agenda thing you know, you know how you get as a leader you've got to have the ability to, to take off your personal agenda and think about what's best for the communal good particularly um, Oh, and once again, it's particularly for Aboriginal people, it's for everyone as well, because um, it is easier to sit in positions of leadership just for yourself and just for career development or for this and that, or to make your CV look good. <clears throat> and those kind of things, um, at the end of the day, probably don't help strategically much for where you're trying to go with whatever you're trying to lead in. Um, and it's it's really important to know what your agenda is before you start doing that stuff. And and if you're doing it for selfish reasons, you, you might want to say no. <laughs> you know, or if you've got no idea what it's about and it's just an ego thing, you might want to say no and in, in those kind of things. So it's it's kind of um, why you're doing things and, and if you have a pure heart <laughs> if you know what you're doing and you know why you're doing it, it's very hard for people to attack you later on. You know, politically this this comes up all the time, you know. Um, and you see politicians getting smashed and stuff like that. Um, if they're sincere and they know what they're doing, but people will respect that, you know, and it'll come through. And I think that in leadership is really, really important, as opposed to what we see currently, which is lots of political leaders saying lots of stuff and doing the exact opposite, and then <laughs> thinking that it's all sort of fine, you know, and the rest of the population going, oh, good grief. Uh, but yeah, so those those kind of things, I think, um, are the kind of three things that I think are really important anyway. But um, and I have I have lots of other things that I that I teach in leadership development for Aboriginal people that are more focused around um, leadership in Aboriginal communities. So, you know, um, just stuff like knowing your audience before you go to community meetings and stuff like that, (laughs) knowing the background of what you're going to get hit with, you know. um, I I reflect that all the way through to um, journos and things like that, so I'm going to get interviewed. One of the organisations that I I, um, helped start, which was the Indigenous Doctors Association um, in Australia, we we're the best communications people there. So... Whenever I have to do an interview, our comms people will tell me the name of the journalist, their background, what kind of questions they'd like to ask, what their ideological leaning was and stuff like that, and the types of things that they might throw in there as curlies. And knowing all that stuff is, is vital in leadership. It's just never getting caught unawares is really important, I think. And at least pretending you know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has to look like they know what they're, that they're in charge. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's that kind of stuff, I think, yeah. Um, And those ones have proved really, really useful for me um, all the way through. Um, And it it is hard to, um, in sort of the politics that I work in, to keep a relatively good name because people do look to bag you, you know, for whatever, whatever's around so, yeah, I think they're important.
0: Tell us a bit about what you do these days. So, you began in, in primary health, kind of on the ground as a doctor, is that yeah. right? Um, and that's progressed bit by bit to talk about national committees over the years. So, w- yeah. what are you doing these days?
1: Um, so, these days, um, um, I'm trying to be a lot more strategic about my involvement in policy research, public health, and um, clinical work um, as well. So, the clinical work's taken a back seat these days because I'm old and just about over the hill. <laughs> ready to retire from clinical. And to be honest, from a leadership perspective, the the value in healthcare isn't the one on one stuff really. If you you know, it's really useful for um, um, stabilising you, and so you understand frontline stuff as well when you're talking national policy. But um, population and policy is probably more important for getting big health gains in Australia, uh, I mean population health and policy gains. So um, so I'm concentrating on them. I'm trying not to get involved in anything long term. So I just like resigned from one of the groups of the Centre for Indigenous Genomics at ANU. Um, and great stuff and I'm really interested in genomics and genetic stuff and epigenetics, all the latest stuff so important. But that's going to be a lead time of 10 to 20 years and I'm not going to be around that long, most likely. So I'm looking at you know, things that are a lot more doing at the moment. So I just um, started on the board of Thirli, which is um, the the national critical response group for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So in communities where there's been a suicide or a um, a significant death or deaths, um, they have a response group that's national. And um, I've already utilised them up here for a couple of suicides and one who I had to be the first responder to. Their their services. Just great. Right. I mean, not just because I sit on the board, but because you know I was looking here thinking about oh, I'll go headspace, go to this place, go to that one, and um, uh, this is a national call centre, and it's all Indigenous run and all Indigenous staff, and um, yeah, that, the they call that family within now. Um, they had a project officer over there who had only started here about a week before, and um, within a day, and they'd organised social housing and stuff like that as well. You know, they can do financial stuff and things. So really useful it really fits into what i'm doing and helps people practically um there's that one there's another one stars foundation i'm just starting with which is um a new initiative in girls schooling and education it's kind of like the equivalent of Clontarf for boys and um, afl house and that sort of stuff um specifically for girls they've got fantastically good roads on the board in northern territory um with getting aboriginal girls through grade 12 passing Um, so kind of things like that you know there's a few other committees that are are really important ones for Aboriginal health um, that I sit on it and and that's more to be able to help shape things and then the other ones are influencing policy as much as I can of current things you know so yeah I I managed to to get kind of that together and be able to say no to a lot of other things that are are just kind of fairly boring and meaningless to me anyway you know Um, so it's not best use of my time and i do all this within upon a payment's time here so and i'm only working three days a week so some days i'm not here that's why (laughs) that's
0: that's my excuse (laughs) yeah so your skill set really lends you to to that oversight and directive stuff on a board and i presume correct me if i'm wrong uh, in addition to that what does the policy work look like you know on a Uh, day-to-day week-to-week basis
1: yeah um so there's there's a few things running at the moment um one is um i sit on a group called IPEG, which is overseeing the implementation of the National Aboriginal Health Plan. Um, So we meet um, quarterly in Canberra, and um, and usually the current Minister of Health comes along to that. And all the policy dudes, you know, um, Prime Minister and Cabinet, Department of Health usually. And um, that's that's trying to guide um, an implementation of a national rollout um, with input from people like me who, who... do the clinical stuff on the ground and see communities and know remote stuff as well. I'm um, having input to that and um and it's really useful so um it, it, certainly if you get to a level where you're a little bit more influential because you can drive. Major policy areas, without any of your body even questioning you. <laughs> Sounds terrible, but it's actually really good, and it's a really good place to be because it is, you know, I, you know, as a, from that leadership stuff, I, I wouldn't do anything that wasn't evidence-based and wasn't and going to have a good outcome. Um, but sometimes you have to push bureaucrats along a bit and push. Um, the rest of the system along a bit because it's the only way to make it work. I um, often say so you want um, having input into those things is really important, you know, so we'll talk about social determinants. The work I added to that implementation was stuff we call cultural determinants and I've been working on a research project where we've just been getting fantastically good outcomes um, from that and it's a bit of a game changer in some ways. So being able to get that straight into policy, um, it's one of the key things now in that policy and um, roll out just saying, yep, actually... Um, That whole thing about Aboriginal identity, time on country and its relationship to land and stuff like that, Um, there's a whole lot of things that we've now found are therapeutic and and do play into um, people's mental health, social and emotional wellbeing. So, um, yeah, the ability to be able to do that um, is really useful. The ability... As a kind of a clinician and frontline person, as health service delivery person as well, to look at national policy um, is things like, you know, people will, will say in a policy meeting, oh, you know, it looks like there's a lot of up- lost opportunities for Aboriginal kids here where they visit the clinics, you know, um, five times a week and they could have done all this work. And, and as a clinician, you're able to say uh, the kids, they come in for so they hate you. <laughs> you're not going to be able to do anything with them kids, OK? As soon as the first two have had their immunisation, they're screaming their heads off, and the mother's going crazy, and the other kids got ADHD, and is swinging by your stethoscope off the chandelier. <laughs> um, so if you think we can do a lot more in that time, that's fine from a policy perspective, but in practice, you can't, you know. Um, so it's bringing practicalities into that, um, and it's really useful um, because that's where often... Um, Centrally developed policy goes wrong. You know, yeah, fails to incorporate local stuff.
0: A mutual friend was telling me just this morning that one of the things that you've been involved with is figuring out that for Indigenous men, the the markers for um, for suicide that they're leaning yeah. towards suicide are different from non-Indigenous men. How did you figure that out, and what, what difference does that make? Um,
1: I didn't actually figure it out. It okay. came from an, an analysis. So Queensland's got a suicide register, and every now and then they publish a report on suicides in Queensland, and um, the group that was doing that um, did a sub-analysis of the Aboriginal suicides in Queensland and, and a bit of thematic analysis on that. Um, they didn't even really publish it, so I just heard about it, and so I got a copy and went, wow, this is... Um, and, and once again, because these are kind of academic kind of people who don't always understand the implications of what they have, so... And when I saw it, I thought, well, this is a bit of a game changer, because all of the things, the contemporary things that we usually look for in mainstream suicide and they're usually the four key things like, you know, you uh, relationship breakdown, you know, loss of a job or employment, um, income or financial worries, um, uh, depression, you know, major depression stuff like that. But for the Aboriginal one was different and, and they so different that we changed the way that we will ask screening questions down, stuff like that. But, you know, exposure to bereavement in the last 12 months, um, which given us the death rates is very high anyway. Exposure to suicide in your in your social group, um, interpersonal and family conflict, and problems with the police. Um, we're all higher drivers than the others in the Indigenous. And so those ones kind of help us to, to really rethink the way that we'd screen and what kind of questions we'd ask. And, um, and because of that work, I've then contacted the coroners up here, and um, we're working with the coroner and, and the police around what kind of questions they ask in their investigation, because... They are a lot more thorough than we are in health. In that, I mean, obviously the police they can ask whatever they like, and people have to tell them. But, and, but, um, but really useful information. So, um, it opens up other doors as well when we do those things, and um, and that's why I occasionally can get that nice information like the suicide stuff that um, that changes the way that we think about stuff. And, and having said that, like you know, um, it's only us in practice who the lights go on when you see that kind of information. They're all just putting it out fairly blase, and you're going. Well, that's pretty big actually for us. Um, we did similar research in Cape York, where we found um, the stressors for kids. You know, so as you know, that school age has changed here. So, twelve-year-olds um, now are getting packing their little bags and leaving the Cape to go down to school. We used those questions on the suicide register for them as well, um, and we did a, a test called a Kessler. Um, but in the first cohort that we looked at, for 12 year olds, 100% had had a bereavement in the last 12 months in their family, 70% had had a suicide in their social group in the last 12 months, and their Kessler's scores were, it worked at high to very high um, overall, it was about 86% of them were high to very high the national data for youth in Australia is about eight percent and it's high to very high and and once again the academic researchers that pulled that data gave it to us back in a PowerPoint presentation and went is that, is that seriously right and they went like, yeah is there a problem I went <laughs> like 80% of our kids are already you know at the end of their tether stressed to the max with you know anxiety depression and exposed all of the things we know cause kind of worse things Um well, we've got a lot of work <laughs> ahead of us, but it, it's um, it's useful stuff. And once again, it's that information flow. And sometimes you just have to be on the alert or in the right place at the right time to pick up that stuff. The other point, of course, is that then you have to push it into practice. But it's, um, it's worthwhile being able to do those things. Well, I guess that's what leadership is meant to be about, you know. It's not just about doing stuff better, but innovation, thinking outside the square and trying to... Um, pull things together so they get better outcomes. But yeah,
0: closing the gap is a um, is a big issue in lots of different sectors and in health as well. What does that mean to you? Closing um, the gap.
1: Um, look, it's interesting because close the gaps. There's two. There's a closing the gap, which is the NGOs that try and keep the government on track. The NGOs and Aboriginal Peaks, um, who really started it, and then there's the close the gap that the government signed up to, and it, and it's just a useful plank in the way that we approach Aboriginal affairs. Um, it's one of the ones that I struggle with, partly because it's meant to be this big macro policy that you know the Prime Minister reports on every 12 months, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, it's not. It's a micro policy, and everything else subsumes it at any given time. So while it's out there, and while there's a lot of rhetoric about it, you know, as soon as the GFC comes along, or anything else, immigrants, whatever it is, um, that is the lowest priority, um, once again, that's that's the frustration with the CTG stuff. But having said that, we've got some really good things out of that um, around um, medication strips and stuff like that that have all had a flow-on effect in health that have been really useful. Um, so that, that's been um, a useful plank. Um, they're obviously so far off on targets um, that it's embarrassing. I don't know. Well, he embarrasses himself and gets up and <laughs> reports on that because he never asks any of the other time. I mean, he should be asking all year, going, why isn't it done yet? But it's a bit late. Then when he gets handed the report and goes, oh, I don't have to- <laughs> can somebody else do this? I'm sure that's what he's thinking. Um, but having said that, you know, the Closer Gap stuff is useful and it makes sure the states and territories are dragged in as well. But, you know... Um, Things like the apology to some generations from Rudd that made a much bigger impact, and although people will say, "Oh well, it's just rhetoric," it's, it doesn't actually no practical reconciliation, as Howard used to say. Um, but in actual fact, it's changed the tone of relationships a lot um, institutionally and with governments. Um, made a huge impact in the Aboriginal Islander community around social, and emotional well-being. Um, the acknowledgement was huge, under undervalued, I think, because no one saw money or you know whatever else programs that with it but a huge thing and, it, and it's interesting because that's the kind of leadership that I like it you know it's took moral, ethical courage to do those things because everyone was worried that he could, everyone would start you know suing him for well, <laughs> stolen generation money and stuff like that and no one did I um, mean the states and territories were already dealing with that themselves anyway but um, um but those kind of things you know um um, kind of it gets the grain, taking a bit of a chance, but you know it's the right thing to do as a leader. That's kind of a really useful thing. And I think that was probably more important in, as a milestone in Australia, in Australia's identity, than the CTG stuff, even though it's programmatic and you know, practical, meant to be. Yeah, yeah.
0: When, when you go from that macro level right down to you know, on the yeah. ground day to day, the people that you know and, and work with and mix with, what can any one person, what can I do to help uh, close the gap or help a relationship and reconciliation?
1: Um, yeah, I think, I think there's a couple of things in this, and, and this is a really it's a kind of difficult question because what is needed is. You know, as an individual, you can do a bit, not much. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you know, yeah. you can do what you can do around advocating more for Aboriginal people, noticing a lot more what's going on around you and thinking through stereotypes and when you see the park, he's drunk um, and that sort of stuff, thinking about where they came from, what their life is and stuff like that, as opposed to judging and, you know, talking to other people, oh, it's gone, those usual kind of things. But... The biggest thing that non-Aboriginal people can do in Australia is as a collective because, you know, the 1967 referendum, and that wasn't run by Aboriginal people, that was run by white people in Australia. And uh, that's what worked. And the same with constitutional reform and things like that. It's not going to be Aboriginal people. And this happens to me all the time, you know, to do a talk at the hospital and the specialists will say, well, but what can we do? <laughs> okay, look, you're look, you're an intelligent person. Sit <laughs> set out for five minutes, you could change your hospital so it'll be much more... It'd be much better and much easier for Aboriginal people, you know. And I'm, I can guarantee it would take you five minutes to think through some of these things, you know. A few more staff, a bit of artwork, <laughs> you know. It doesn't take much. But um, but but once again, it's my response to him was, it's actually your hospital. You can do whatever you like with your hospital. If you want to change it to suit us a bit more, that would be fantastic. But I can't do that. So it's no use asking me to change it. Um, and the same with this stuff, you know, constitutional reform, um, how Australia's going, who you vote for, whether you make some of the Aboriginal issues and election issues high as gay marriage or anything else, you know. Um, we think that's important and we think it's a priority for Australians. And um, I was listening to Mick Dodson um, talk about the constitutional reform stuff and he was saying, um, and it was a lovely kind of middle-class white audience and in, uh, in this is in Canberra again, and, and a lady said exactly that. She kind of said, Mick, you know, phone all this stuff, but what can we do? What can we, just the average Australian, do? And he goes, well, it's your country. <laughs> you can do whatever you like with it, you know. It's up to you guys, really. Um, it's not up to us. Um, so we can make recommendations. Like the honorary statement was pretty low-key. There wasn't much in it at all. There wasn't much to reject, really. <laughs> it was saying, be nice to us and tell the truth and we'll be nice to you, um, which sounded fair enough to me. But um, that... Australia or mainstream Australia taking hold of this as an agenda and saying actually it's our responsibility, not their responsibility. That's where it, that's where the action's at, I reckon. Yeah. Um, and it's doable. It's just that it's never, there's never, you know, and we have champions for our cause all the time, but there's not a lot of non-Indigenous champions for pulling people together and promoting all that sort of stuff. Um, other than the NGOs, you know, the people who kind of help us all the time, Oxfam and all the others, um, they um, kind of put a bit of structure around Mainstream responses and stuff like that, or leadership around that, I should say, from an NGO or a you know, but yeah, so I think there's lots to do in Australia, um, and I think it's relatively limited as an individual, but as a group, we're incredibly able to change Australia. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, <laughs> can you tell us about one of the best
1: leaders you've ever met? Um, yeah, look, there's, there's so many, eh? Um, uh, I reckon, um, well, of course, Jesus, um had everything <laughs> what can you say he like knew his purpose knew who he was everything strategy um, and did the hard stuff you know knew what he was going to do and still did it dance like but so there's that there's that level which is a bit too high for me <laughs> but um <clears throat> and then there's there's people that I work with are any mayor of Lockhart River Wayne Butcher you know Derek Walpole Ben Arracoon, um, Ali Addo here they're all mayors of these little communities And that underfunded, under-resourced. Why would you take a job like that? You know, Um, because you have everybody on your back the whole time. But they do it, and they lead, and they lead graciously. Um, um, Tracker Tillmouth, William Tillmouth out in Alice Springs was the chair of the board. I was on out there. Once again, a really simple but wise man who was a leader who um, could cut through all of the complicated stuff um, with a single couple of words and make us all feel like idiots. You know, Um, but um, in a really gentle way a way that brings people with him and stuff like that um the other person who's a bit of a hero of mine around leaderships tamana Tofu, who who played for the dreaded blues and I, I was doing an interview with a guy on um um state of origin and stuff like that and i'm crazy like trust me i can't sleep for the next three nights we lose but but um um and they were talking about you know who who do you think has been indigenous leadership And you know he he, he he pulled out of the New South Wales team because of racism in the team that's his career that's the most important games of his career in the most important games in Australia um, and he just walked from it and went wow that's that's courage and leadership, I think, being able to do that. So although we've got more blackfellas in the Queensland team, <laughs> I've never seen any of them do that, you know, um, because of that, making a statement about something that's bigger than the game and bigger than themselves. So um, I like Tim. And, of course, I still like, you know, the usual um, peaceful change kind of gurus like Martin Luther King um, and Um And that that um, black and marine guy, Cornelius West, or whatever his name is, he's not bad either. He's a Christian... Um, such you know social commentator um He's not that wrapped in um, his president, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> As a humanitarian, no, but um, <laughs> you get that. Yeah.
0: Um, what, what I'm hearing from you is, is obviously the incredible value of on-the-ground leadership day-to-day, like the mayors that you spoke of, but also yeah. how important um, big uh, s- symbolic statements are and, and actions are um, for shaping things, that both of those yeah. things are
1: equally important. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I think which I didn't touch on is... Um, Um, In leadership, you've still got to pay your dues, you know. You've got to to earn respect and credibility and all the other things, and it takes time and effort and um, stickability, you know, like just not leaving all the time, that kind of stuff. So that was the other side that I think is really important, but that's the the hard part. Don't have to talk about that. Um, When you disagree with management and you still have to do things, you know, and those kind of things, um, because sooner or later you get to the point where it's your influence that makes a bigger difference, so... Yeah, so big picture stuff, localise and making sure you're true to your community and stuff like that. I think is vital, and yeah, ethical and moral leadership is really important, more so than um, other stuff. I think, and I think, I think the other thing that I'd add is transparency. But it's not always that easy, you know, um, um, in leadership. But wherever you can be transparent, it's much easier. <laughs> later
0: <laughs> yes when you're um, lying in bed at night reflecting on your day what constitutes a
1: good day for you as a leader um, I finished everything i was supposed to do and I don't have anything hanging over my head like I've got to do a national Presentation next week on something I know nothing about and I haven't started yet. Um, <laughs> that's a bad thing, and <laughs> what I go to bed thinking about. But so a good day for me is you're getting through stuff in policy, programs, and strategy and stuff like that. It's almost impossible to do a good day's work because you're never finished. As opposed, to if I'm doing clinical work and I see twenty patients, um, my work's done. You know, I help people walk out feeling like I've done stuff and close the book. Um, this other stuff the book never closes <laughs> and it's always ongoing you know so um and knowledge is always ongoing around learning the latest evidence and stuff like that so generally if i've got nothing hanging over my head i'm happy and if i can do some free thinking as well because that's when i get my best thoughts <laughs> around solutions to world hunger everything <laughs> so yeah that's that's good for me
0: if someone would like to find out more or connect with you um about you or your work how could they do that
1: I'll give you a card. Oh, yeah, you gave me one oh, Yeah, that's one. Yeah, it's an X-ray for fish on yours. I, mm. I do like your logo. That's great. The Pima logo. It's the best one. Best organisation logo I've worked for, you know. That's why I'm sticking around. I leadership at all. I just like the logo.
0: PuntaPima.org.au. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for your time. Your no worries, mate. vulnerability and, and sharing with us here. Thank you so much. No worries at all. fascinating interview with dr mark he has an amazing capacity as a leader to serve and influence from a grassroots level right down to the federal government and back up again i love his passion for his work for improving health outcomes for aboriginal and indigenous australians and for his humility and sense of humor you know dr mark inspires me to keep growing as a leader and to have an impact in my local community in all sorts of different ways and i hope this interview with him did the same for you keep an eye out for future episodes of the far north leadership podcast if you subscribe on your favorite podcasting app they'll pop up whenever a new one is released and if you find this helpful or interesting please pass it on to a friend or a colleague and maybe you'd even like to leave us a review on your podcasting app i'll be back soon with another episode of the far north leadership podcast